I'm Joshua Kagi from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 41 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. In this episode, the Reverend Dr. Corey Fields, Senior Pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Newark, Delaware, joins Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas for a conversation about ministry in the context of a racially and ethnically diverse community located directly across the street from a major university campus, and how this year's season of Lent is the perfect time to relearn confession, penance, and costly grace. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with the Reverend Dr. Corey Fields. The Reverend Dr. Corey Fields is senior pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Newark, Delaware, and a contributing author at The Christian Citizen. He also serves on the board of directors of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies, the publisher of The Christian Citizen. Corey, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you here today. Thanks, Curtis. So we're going to talk a little bit about your latest article for the publication, but first tell us a little bit about your ministry in Newark. Okay, so um, pastoring a church that's kind of nestled right on uh, on the campus, basically, of the University of Delaware in Newark. Um, about, uh, you know, in, in normal times, non-COVID times, about 90 to 100 people are in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning. Um, and it's a, it's a church that is uh, racially and ethnically diverse uh, and a church that is uh, kind of known for its ministry to the homeless and other vulnerable populations. It was one of several churches that were uh, involved in starting the the day center in our area for the Friendship House. So Friendship House is kind of a Northern Delaware um, nonprofit organization that works mostly with the homeless uh, and needy population. They have several day centers and there's one just down the street from us. And before my time at the church, Calvary was involved in um, in, in getting that started. Uh, and we've been involved in a code purple network, which is, you know, emergency shelter for the homeless population when the temperatures are dangerously cold. So we're one of the churches that actually hosts them on site. Once again, in non COVID times, it's going to be interesting how things look in the future. Uh, and, and so we have, um, it, it, it's really been uh, a, an interesting and edifying setting for me, just with the, the, diversity of race and age and and life situation and we also often see uh, like um, graduate students from the University of Delaware come through our doors we've had some uh, just very interesting fascinating people that we've been able to get to know uh, by those means Um, and uh, it's also been our pleasure the last few years to host and sponsor a refugee family um, that's that's been resettled in in Delaware uh, through with Jewish Family Services uh, that we partner with. They came from the Central African Republic. uh, And just it's been, you know, they have this harrowing story of, you know, running for their lives and um, and just trying to survive and and being able to minister to them and help them resettle and and learn life here and just walk alongside them in a lot of different ways has been uh, really cool. So there's a couple of tidbits. So you mentioned non-COVID times. Uh, I'm assuming you're worshiping online as as many congregations are at this point. And, we, we, uh, we are worshiping online. There's a we, we kind of have a tentative date that we're looking towards to actually reopen our sanctuary so long as things continue on a positive trend. But but yes, online. 
and and the day center ministry has been impacted. Uh, I'm assuming you can't gather folks for that. Well, that, so that's hosted by at another church facility, um, not not our facility, and they have managed to at least um, continue to provide services just without uh, having the, the normal grouping in, in the room that they used to use. You know, they kind of use an entryway and still do intake and try to get people the assistance that they need. So your latest article focuses on the Lenten season as a time of reflection self-denial and confession. And you begin with a reminder of Isaiah's words about the fast God has chosen uh, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. How do you apply that text to where we are today as a society? Yeah, well, um, I, I think we've been made more aware these days, uh, I think and hope, of the chains of injustice and, and the yoke and the burdens and the oppressions that are keeping people down. Um, the interesting part is that it does seem that some of the events of last year, especially the, the killing of George Floyd, was some kind of a wake-up call for some, uh, but for others, you know, particularly uh, Americans of color and black Americans, uh, it was perhaps a moment of for them of saying, see, <laughs> um, th- this has been th- this has been our reality. This has been our experience. This is what we have seen among our uh, friends and family members and communities. Uh, this is nothing new, but we're, we're glad that apparently more of you are seeing it, right? Uh, and so, th- but that's that's one example. But uh, I also think that we've seen in the in the past few years uh, just much more intentional injustice and almost intentional cruelty. Um, whether you talk about the, the separation of of immigrant families uh, or just more overt racism, I feel that overt racism has made a comeback. You know, when you see people in the highest echelons of government telling congressional members of color to go back to where they came from, even though they're all citizens, <laughs> whether natural born or naturalized. Um, so there, I, I think... I think and hope that there's been kind of a a, a reckoning. Um, a few more people have seen that there is a problem that is not going to go away just by moving on. Um, and and as I talk about the, the the recent events, which you may be asking about later, but the the recent events are really just the very very tip, the very very violent tip of a very large iceberg that's been there for a very long time. And so I think that that verse came to mind for me when I think about uh, is, is this a new moment that we have to admit this, reckon with this, and find it hiding even in our congregations. As we are uh, talking today, the Senate is conducting its impeachment trial of of Donald Trump. And as horrific as the attack of uh, January 6th was, as unique and exceptional as that event was in our history in some sense, um, it's not as unprecedented as, as some have uh, made it sound, is it? 
Yeah, that's right. And I give I give credit to Ibram X. Kendi for being one of the ones uh, uh, recently and vocally to point this out. Uh, so, you know, he's the author of um, of Stamped from the Beginning, you know, A History of Racist Ideas. That's one of the longer books. If people uh, like a shorter read of him, um, his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is really good also. But he wrote a, an article for The Atlantic uh, where he talks about this denialism um, and how this is this is kind of the way that we that we have done things when there there's this violent incident um, that really kind of shows what's uh, a, a large systemic thing that's hidden underneath kind of bubbles over in the in violent acts like January 6th. He, he points out that we are very good at denying um, and minimizing the this kind of thing and, and saying that he points to the most recent phrase, this is not who we are. And he kind of asks a question, are we sure <laughs> that this is not who we are? Uh, and he points to a lot of other things that are that kind of run along the same lines. I mean, the January 6th attacks were unprecedented in certain ways. But in, in more local and state contexts, you can find smatterings of this all throughout history. He points to the Colfax Massacre, the Battle of Liberty Place, the Wilmington, North Carolina Massacre, the Tulsa Race Massacre, all in some way examples of uh, the kind of the white power structure running out of ways to keep people of color from gaining a new level of uh, self-determination um, and, and power in society that they previously didn't have. And the result is violence um, and, and a narrative that uh, that that actually the people doing this are the ones that are oppressed uh, and the the experience of less privilege being felt as as oppression and and latching on to that and acting out violently and so yes uh, as, as I kind of quote Kendi there uh, this is not is is it totally unprecedented um, unfortunately we have such a long and troubled history of racial violence um, that we just seem so good at denying and I understand the point of saying this is not who we are I, I understand that they're trying to say uh, this can't be uh, how we do things you know we have to do better there are so many Americans who don't believe in doing things this way and that's all true but you can't get to the roots of a problem without reckoning with the reality of it and just how pervasive this kind of thing has been in American history. And I, I remember how transformative it has been for me to read about all these things and realize, you know, it didn't affect me. So it was out of my worldview. You know, it, it actually takes some work um, and opening yourself up to truths that you don't want to see. Uh, to realize how real this is for other people, even though you didn't experience it yourself. This uh, denial about our history, this unwillingness to see the bad with the good, um, is also coupled with a tendency to make false equivalences when it comes to violence, is it not? Um, isn't that what we're seeing today from those who uh, excuse in some way what happened January 6th? by making the case that there was also violence during uh, widespread protests against uh, systemic racism last summer. 
That's right. Yeah. And, and even if they're not uh, wanting to excuse it, they um, th- they are somehow trying to say, well, you know, you, you got to be consistent. If you're going to condemn this violence, you have to condemn the violence around the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, and, and yes, one of the things that I point out is that that's uh, not a fair comparison at all. Um, that that is a an, an illusion of the things that the media latches onto, right? So there's always uh, some violence that breaks out, and there's looting and all of that. And one of the things people miss is that is always clearly condemned by uh, the, the the people of color and the protesters in these communities. Every time that happens, you can see videos after video and interview after interview of them saying, "This is not this is not what we wanted. Don't do this to our." community. Uh, but more to the point, uh, there was a there was a study done on 7,750 Black Lives Matter protests across the United States just in the summer of 2020. And I think many of us didn't realize there were that many, right? And, you know, there were many different sizes, some small, some large, but more than 7,000 protests uh, around those issues just in the summer of 2020. And they studied them. 93% were peaceful. And beyond that, they found that some of the violence that did happen was instigated by police or counter protesters. There's absolutely no comparison between that and the events of January 6th that were fully premeditated and enthusiastically planned. I mean, there have been reporters that have documented, uh, especially the group's presence on Facebook before they were kicked off <laughs> that uh, th- that platform, talking about violence, planning for violence, talking about what weapons they were going to bring, posting pictures of such things. Um, so, there's absolutely no comparison between that and those who protest peacefully for racial justice. And in a small minority of those events, there are some opportunistic, usually opportunistic young people not affiliated with the cause who uh, admittedly have some pent up anger and things like that, but engage in violence and looting and, and things like that. But uh, that's this is what happens, right? This is another part of the denialism where this effectively demonizes the Black Lives Matter cause while softening white violence. And as people like Kendi would point out, this is this is what happens every time, all the time. Uh, th- those few are are called out to kind of uh, paint the whole movement of people of color as bad where white violence is minimized and even excused. You didn't see people talking the same way about uh, what happened in the streets when the Buccaneers won the Super Bowl, you know, but there was there was a plenty of violence and destruction there, too. And and strangely, no one talked about that the same way and and, and tried to demonize the whole group or a whole um, fan base. Yeah, two two very different standards in how we approach um, what's happening. So there's been uh, a lot of talk about healing uh, following the attack on the Capitol. Talk about moving on, um, as if uh, taking an honest account of what happened is only furthering division. Um, but isn't it true that absent that accounting, any unity that we achieve will be false and fleeting? Yeah, so I, I I think this is the one of the big reasons I wrote 
the article and kind of latched onto these Christian concepts of confession and penance and repentance. And particularly, I want to think about the the word and the concept of penance, because uh, that's not, um, at least in the circles I've grown up in, that's not a popular word. We don't talk about that a lot. But I think it's a very helpful concept where we where, where it says, if you realize you've done something wrong, if you're confessing a wrong, there has to be some kind of follow-up action. Um, there has to be some kind of self-sacrifice. There has to be some kind of, of vulnerable uh, opening up of yourself and uh, um, a metanoia, the, the Greek word for repentance, you know, changing your ways and changing your mind. So I, I think it's so important to realize the the high level of, of cruelty and violence and intolerance that, that we have seen, um, that, that our immigrant communities, communities of color and others have been experiencing. Uh, and and we, there has to be accountability for that first. I mean, there's a reason that, that you know, John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you know, and he didn't say that to the people who were coming to be baptized and, and being and, and admitting that they were wrong, but to the, the high and mighty religious on the, on the, on the shore there, um, calling them a brood of vipers. <laughs> you know, there is, there is this call to accountability first. And so, yes, I mean, there has to be healing is, is what we do, right? And Second Corinthians tells us that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, right? But I think uh, in South Africa, they really got this right when, when it was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There has to be truth first. Like, we have to first understand what has been done, what our role is in it, how we've been complicit in it. And, and that has to come first. Um, there's confession, there's repentance, and there's penance uh, for, for those of us who realize that something within us and within our own communities has to change. And how do we reckon with that? So, and after that, there can be healing. Um, as I say in the article, to expect otherwise is, is really kind of a page out of the abuser's playbook. Um, this is unfortunately a reality that many people, especially women, are very familiar with. You know, the, 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 the violence happens again and again. And at some point you realize that there has to be more that happens rather than just uh, a, a, an I'm sorry and an I promise not to do it again. You know, Th this is very real on a large scale here. A lot of violence, both both literal and, and more systemic, more policy-based violence has been done to a lot of people. Uh, and I don't think an I'm sorry and a promise to do better is enough. And I think the Christian tradition and the biblical witness tells us the same thing. In the article, you uh, referenced the distinction that the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer made between uh, cheap grace and costly grace. How does that uh, distinction inform your perspective? Right. So it, um, I, I've always found that distinction by him uh, fascinating and helpful, you know, where it's, it's an affirmation that this gift of grace is always offered, uh, but there's a way in which we must receive it 
that is more along the lines of, of recognizing that there's a transformation and a change that has to happen within us. So he says, cheap grace is the, is, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance and baptism without church discipline, he says, and communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Um, and I, I really see, especially in the first part of that quote, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, um, we, th- that is, again, the point that we can't just move on and say we will get along uh, and, and, and do better. This, this Christian tradition of confession and repentance and, and where uh, I think an important part of it is that we have to be as specific as possible, right? Like the, the, the more specific confession is, the, the better it is. Um, and, and the more it, it, it kind of facilitates our transformation and, and receiving what, the, what, what God has for us. Um, it is not just a, a, a gift to be received and run off with. You know, it, it is a gift that asks of us to put ourselves in our place um, and, and make a change in our communities. And he says, by contrast, costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again and again, and the door at which one must knock. I, I remember being at uh, American Baptist Church's biennial um, years ago. I think this might have been the one in Portland uh, where there was a, a breakout group uh, on, on some topic of race. I don't remember exactly, but I attended this breakout room and remembering this was in 2017. So it was Portland and remember hearing, uh, just being taken aback by the, the voices of, of people in that room, um, people of color in their 50s, 60s and older who were in there saying, I feel like I'm back in the 1960s. You know, I'm, I'm feeling this this pain all over again. I'm feeling uh, this this new level of racism is, is all too familiar to me. And comparing that with the large room where we gathered for worship, you know, where whenever you're there, the full diversity of American Baptist churches is on display, right? And they're very good about incorporating all of that in worship and representing it on stage. And we see our diversity in the large room, but you go in the small room and you hear these discussions and you hear the pain that is still there. And that's when you realize that being together is not the same thing as being reconciled. And that there is still work to do. So that, I think, is the costly grace that is being required of us. And, you know, it, it's not going to be easy. It's, it's going to involve um, discussions in our congregations, um, calls for, for real confession that, that get to the heart of the things that we've still been allowed to leave at the door and come into the sanctuary and read the scriptures that we read and sing the songs that we sing and then go back and post racist stuff on Facebook. You know, that's somehow church is going to have to be the place where speaking the truth in love, we are able to bring that more out into the open, call each other to account for that and be a place where these stories of pain and hurts are heard and realizing where we might be complicit. You mentioned earlier the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission in post-apartheid South America. Um, And while that might not be on the horizon, 
for us nationally, you suggest the possibility of that within the church. Um, and I think you're you're kind of getting that at that here. But what would that look like? And are there uh, resources you're aware of that would help churches facilitate such a process? Right. Yeah. So um, I I really think that there's power in just starting with uh, opening up a, a time and a space to to share these stories and try to build the trust that. Is is no is not always there automatically, or that we may assume is there, but it's not. Um, in in my church, that like I mentioned, is uh, is diverse racially and ethnically. Uh, we decided uh, to start with um, a curriculum called "Be the Bridge" by Latasha Morrison, um, and it, there's a there's a book, but there's also discussion curriculum that has specifics around uh, you know how you build the group, making sure there's diversity in the group, and it kind of guides people to uh, to have these discussions, to share, to listen to stories. I first became aware of it from. Uh, other colleagues of mine, uh, also uh, also whites, who tried this in their church, and they were sharing how transformative it was for them to hear stories that they just hadn't had the opportunity to hear before. Uh, it, it, it's very interesting, you know. We um, the 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 truth in my life has been that I spent so much time. Uh, just kind of thinking about this in the abstract, but not having taking that opportunity to sit down, um, develop relationships of trust with people who might have had very different life experiences from me and just listen uh, to what they have experienced. And uh, my experience has been the more that you hear and the more that you read, the more you start to see the, the patterns you know, um, there was uh, d- just to bring this this confession thing I've been talking about back home. There was a an, an article I wrote about uh, for another publication about how uh, I one of the things I realized in myself was that I was th- thinking of certain communities in in different ways, and I realized that it's because of these things that we internalize over our lives about how that this community is is more dangerous than this community even though um even though the differences kind of come from from racial stereotypes that we don't realize we internalize throughout our lives because i had i had done different work in uh, a, a poor community in Kansas when I lived there that was that was majority white uh, versus some other meetings and things I had in a community in Wilmington here in Delaware that's majority black. And I came to a point of realizing that I thought of those communities in very different ways, uh, even though there there was no there was no factual or statistical difference in anything involving the drugs or the violence or anything. They were basically the same in those areas. And I think for, for many people like me, that's, that's going to be the case. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi point points this out in anything from entertainment to movies to in so many ways, we don't realize that these, these stereotypes and ideas that have been reinforced for centuries about how people of color are, are somehow more dangerous or more inferior or all of these things, we have to realize that it has seeped into us and we don't even realize it. So, uh, and so, and, and I, I think it, 
so much of this can start with hearing these stories. So that happened for some of us with using this to be the bridge curriculum. And then we also recently in our state had a 21 day racial equity challenge where it was sponsored by the YWCA and, and the United Way. They sent out materials each day for 21 days that covered different areas of, of inequity in our country um, with, with involving people of color. And there were videos and articles and things like that. And that just really, um, I, I hosted uh, just a short Zoom conversation uh, e each day of that challenge and invited people to come and just talk about what we were learning and reading that day. And even just that quick opportunity to come together and digest this and talk about what we were hearing and seeing and how it lined up with experiences of people in our own congregation. Uh, it was it was very beneficial, transformative, and I think most importantly, fostered um, relationships of trust where, uh, you know, for, for people who experience these, th this violence, these microaggressions and all these things on a daily basis, they're not going to just open up. <laughs> they're not going to just say, okay, I'll tell you my story because they've learned that a lot of times it's going to be uh, rejected, minimized, or or, or otherwise just not received with grace. So uh, that, that's been a key thing. And those are a couple of resources that we used. So there really is a, I, as I hear you talk about it, there, there's a real need for, for the church, for, for congregations to be a safe space for that kind of development of relationship that can then be the foundation for that kind of sharing. But also I'm hearing as well, maybe a, a counter narrative to so much of what we um, kind of grow up with and are, are surrounded by these um, these other narratives about um, communities of color and, and, and things of that kind. We need to be, a, a, in some respect, I think a counter narrative to all that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it, it I, I, I think a, a, a good starting point is to say, to admit, to confess, if you will, that uh, that we don't understand, you know, that that at least to be to be able to say, I don't know what I don't know. Right. Uh, I remember I don't know where this came from, but I remember years ago reading a story of a church that set up a confession booth <laughs> somewhere in public. And it actually said that in big letters, confession booth. And and so they had they had people come by and they say, wait a minute, what is this? You expect me to come here to you and confess my sins or what? What is this? And the point was for the, the church to respond. No, no, no. This is our confession booth. We are set up here to confess our sins as the church to you. Uh, here's how we have fallen short. Here's how we have turned a blind eye. Here's how we have um, participated in, in discrimination, things like that. And of course, as you might imagine, when it got to that point in, in conversations they were able to have with people, then all of a sudden the defenses start to fall uh, and, and a new conversation opens up, a new openness opens up and someone on the outside, so to speak, who's not involved in church and has this conversation with them is able to say, oh, okay, so maybe uh, you're actually genuine. Um, maybe you're actually going to take this seriously and maybe you realize that we're on 
uh, more of an equal playing field here, you know? So, and that, again, that goes back to why I wrote about confession and penance and the opportunity we have to use um, Lent for that kind of thing. You know, what, what would it look like for the church to do some kind of public um, confession and penance to show their community that they are serious about doing better. Um, my, my, my own church is, is, is kind of one of those many places where we're lucky to have racial and ethnic diversity under our roof, um, but that doesn't mean at all that we've arrived. Um, and so we, we, we have an opportunity to show <clears throat> to show our communities that we're serious, that we know that we have skin in the game, that we know that we have failures and that we're willing to work on this together. So um, it's a Lent is a great time uh, for the church to do its own confession and penance. And so that's, that's why I kind of latched onto that. As you uh, think about all these things, what gives you pause about the future and what gives you hope? Um, well, what, what gives me pause is, uh, the discouragement that I feel, uh, about how we, we, we seem to be just kind of, um, normalizing and accepting, um, more and more things that, that are just wrong, um, we, we seem to be normalizing um, the, the kind of racism and, and violence and cruelty that we are seeing and the way that I hear you know, on social media and other places, um, Christians willing to excuse it um, ju- just because they're hearing what they want to hear on, on this or that um, singular issue or litmus test. So, I, I do think there's actually there, there's there is discouragement. That's what gives me pause. Uh, I, I'll briefly mention that we had a we had a seminar around the holidays about you know uh, finding hope in the in in um, the midst of the holiday season that we're experiencing. You know, recognizing that COVID was making the holidays even more difficult. So we held this seminar to talk about these issues, and I was um, it it, it kind of turned on a light bulb for me when I realized that the people who came to that seminar. The, the 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 fact of being separated from their families for the holidays was not the only or not even the biggest thing they were dealing with. It was a loss of faith in humanity. <laughs> I mean, we, we heard people saying, you know, what I'm really struggling with is what my friends and family are willing to accept and excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was difficult and, and enlightening to hear. And so I kind of feel the same way. That's what gives me pause. Um, but of course, there is also much reason for hope, and I think it is a lot of of what we are seeing. Um, American Baptist Churches USA has started new conversations around anti-racism. Um, our our my, our own church, my own church, had this opportunity to uh, start a new. It, what started with a discussion group became an action team. Uh, and we've now started a second group. And our goal is to get as many people as possible in the congregation to go through this experience of having these conversations. And I don't think, I don't think we're alone 
in that. Um, the, the old saying is it's, it's easier to catch a wave than it is to cause a wave, you know, and uh, I think there is a wave to catch right now. Um, I think more and more of these voices are being heard and there's more and more willingness to do some of this hard work. Uh, I see it being done. Uh, so I think uh, I, I think there is reason for hope, and we are at a a time of great opportunity that I see um, some Christians and churches taking advantage of. Well, Corey, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Curtis. I appreciate it. Visit ChristianCitizen.us to read Corey's latest article, Lent 2021 is the perfect time to relearn confession, penance, and costly grace. While there, sign up for our weekly newsletter with links to new content from The Christian Citizen, as well as a summary of news and opinion from elsewhere. Hold fast, be well, thanks for listening. At The Christian Citizen, we're passionate about justice, mercy, and faith. We produce award-winning content that is provocative, timely, and relevant. What started 25 years ago as a print publication is now a digital-first publication that maintains a commitment to print. More recently, we've added a weekly e-newsletter, this podcast, and a growing presence on social media. Now, for the first time, we're adding a member support program, Christian Citizen Ambassadors. Learn more about how you can support our work at christiancitizen.us slash members. Thank you to this week's guest, Reverend Dr. Corey Fields. Our theme music is Eye of the Beholder by Fabian Tell. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMichael, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit our website, ChristianCitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thanks for listening.